90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Oh, doing pretty well. Just getting ready, geared up for field camp. I'm sure a lot of people are getting geared up for their field seasons as well. How about you? Oh, you know, I'm just in the lab, like always. So <laughs> I, I don't have field seasons. I just wanted to rub <laughs> it in. It's always field season in the rock mechanics lab, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> so still pasty white. Gotcha. <laughs> but hey, field season for you means that summer shorts are coming up. So that's exciting. Uh, that is exciting. I mean, it's sad because they're so short, but it's exciting because they're fun little topics that we don't normally cover. Well, okay, they're not that short. Summer, summer shorts are supposed to be 30 minutes, and we never run under 45 anyway, so. Hey, you know, gift of gab, what can I say? It's not like the bonus episode. That was over an hour. <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, there's no stopping us. No. <laughs> Speaking of which, we have someone else joining us today. So we have quite a few guests here in a row. Uh, we have Kaya Riverman joining us. Hi, Kaya. Why, hello, John. Thanks so much for having me on today. Yeah. So would you like to tell folks a little bit about your background? Yeah, absolutely. So I am a current PhD student here at Penn State in the geosciences department. And I came to be a glacial hydrologist um, via a earth science degree at Oregon State. So I've been excited about studying the earth for a long time. But um, yeah, I was I was that kid at Oregon State that took all the science classes and couldn't get enough of it. And now here I am, many years later, studying glaciers. I think you're in good company in that respect. Excellent. I knew you guys were my people. Yep. <laughs> well, as you can probably tell, we have lots of questions about glaciers, some of which are probably uh, not necessarily all that intelligent of questions. But <laughs> You're talking about my questions? <laughs> <laughs> Look, just because I can't explain Eskers very well, John. <laughs> I, you know, I have a hard time with Eskers also, actually. Thank you. Thank you. Especially when you talk. Well, we'll get we'll get to there. We'll get there. <laughs> right. Just a little preview, but they are confusing. Exactly. You actually get to have field seasons too, right? So you and Shannon both get to go and do fun things in the field. I do. Yeah, I, I get to visit both poles, actually. So uh, I do the Arctic in the summer and the Antarctic in the winter, which is, of course, their summer. Um, and then sometimes some Alaska and Svalbard in between. Man, that's that's showing off right there. I'm just gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I like it. It works. It works out pretty well. Uh, it turns out uh, there aren't very many glaciers in central Pennsylvania, so uh, we get to go visit visit other places a good bit. <laughs> that's kind of awesome that you have constant summer and yet it's in the middle of you know. An yeah, ice it, desert. <laughs> it doesn't really feel like constant summer. I, I yep. never really get to bust out the shorts. <laughs> exactly. Um, and and the extent of the tan I get is kind of the raccoon look of, of the lower <laughs> half of the face. <laughs> hey, balaclavas are important in that environment, I imagine. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> <laughs> so you've done a lot of interesting things, but one of the ones that I wanted to uh, talk about mainly on this, was your Nick Point work, because this is just really fascinating. And we did a, a Geology ABC show a while back, and Nick Point was the K-word that we picked. So I thought this would be a, <laughs> a good way to uh, elaborate on that some, because we both gushed about it for a very short amount of time and then quickly ran out of knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> yes. 
Absolutely. I, I'm a big fan of Nick Points myself. Um, in, in the glacial hydrology world, they are an underappreciated feature. So I'm uh, doing my best to bring them to the forefront of everyone's attention within glacial hydrology, um, which is to say that they've been completely neglected in the world of in glacial hydrology. And so I'm taking lots of pictures inside of glaciers and showing the, the glaciology world that, hey, we have waterfalls inside of glaciers and you all need to care about them. <laughs> <laughs> so a nick point really is just this steep change in slope where there's a waterfall right is that a a, yeah. a good generalization yeah exactly so what we see within glaciers is actually pretty similar to what you see kind of on any terrestrial system elsewhere where you get these these reaches of nick point clusters so you'll have a, a riffle and then a pool and then a riffle and so I've, I've been interested in describing how do those form and how do they change and how do they kind of influence the overall glacial hydrology system. Um, we care about water in ice and under ice because it has a big impact on the way that ice flows and changes and, and moves over time. And so, you know, trying to describe these features, which are the main transport of water from the surface of the ice to underneath the ice um, has big impact for understanding you know, just general ice dynamics and, and how glaciers might change in the future when you've got warmer climates and more water being produced on the surface and so war, more water being transported to underneath them. I just think this is really interesting because when people think glaciers, they never think about movement of water. You know, like in my intro classes, we talk about they're like frozen rivers, but I think people underestimate, especially after looking at the pictures on your website, how much liquid water is in a glacial system. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and that water plays a huge role really in, in the way that the ice flows. We see these kind of fundamental differences in the movement of the Greenland ice sheet where you have water that's able to penetrate to underneath the ice and, and where it isn't. Um, because all of a sudden you've got this big energy transport from the surface of the ice to underneath. You know, you can have daily variations in the glacier somewhere where water is able to transport energy from the surface of the ice to underneath the ice. Um, and so understanding how that system changes over time is, is really key. And it's one of the main ways that this affects the movement of the glacier, just by changing the, the water pressure, the fluid pressure underneath the glacier, making it easier to move. Is that how this works? Yeah, exactly. So where, where you have um, effective pressure changes, so, so you're able to effectively float the glacier where you have very high water pressures. Um, and of course, you know, if you're thinking about a ice cubes sitting on a table where, where it's wet, where, where you've got that lubrication, it's able to move much more quickly. So where, where you have high water pressures, you can move the ice around much more rapidly. So how do you monitor these things? Like, how do we, how do we know all this stuff is happening since you're not there all the time? Yeah, definitely. Um, so, you know, if I'm interested in changes to Antarctica and Greenland, I, I can't spend my year there. And so remote <laughs> sensing ends up being a, a key tool for understanding how, how the ice changes day in and day out. Um, and so we're able to use satellite data to look at you know, changes in velocity and then compare that with stations that we have on the ice surface. Um, and, and so we can develop this picture of how across a season um, the ice is being impacted by meltwater inputs. Um, and then in places where I go, like in Svalbard, we're actually able to crawl down inside of these systems and study them, not only from space, but also from actually 
being within them, kind of studying the hydrology from the inside out, if you will. Uh, these are the amazing pictures that are on your website, um, <laughs> which are amazing and terrifying. I mean, do you guys use LIDAR? Do you do stuff like that? What do you use inside the glacier then? Yeah, so so in order to to develop an understanding of, you know, what is the configuration of the overall system, um, I start off by just mapping it. So uh, it's very kind of 1840s-esque, right? So I'm, I'm crawling <laughs> around inside the glacier, sketching it, truly sketching by hand. Um, and so I use a laser rangefinder to give me distances, but then from point to point, I, I sketch um, what is the shape of the passage like? And then I use a compass and an inclinometer to say, okay, what's the direction and distance and angle to the next station and sketch between here and there. And I kind of feel like Lewis and Clark sometimes with this, you know, I'm, I'm just measuring and sketching these systems, but people don't hang out in there. I'm, you know, I'm the first person to go down inside there and, and draw it. So that's where we start. Um, this makes me so happy. <laughs> oh, me too. Don't worry. <laughs> um, I, I teach intro to field methods and people are like, why do we need to know how to use a compass? And I'm like, there are places where this is important. I make my students stop and sketch stuff and they just don't get it. And I'm so throwing this in their faces now. I'm very excited. <laughs> well, and next time you're out there with them, have them appreciate for a second that their compass works so well because Svalbard is at 89 <laughs> degrees or 79 degrees north. And your compass there is terrible. It, I can't Because the needle is at such a steep angle that the, the measurements we get are terrible. And then so the do you actually end up it, weighting one end? Um, no. I, well, I should. <laughs> Next time I go up, I should. <laughs> um, and you also really have to be careful with how close you get it to your headlamp because a lot of modern headlamps have, have magnets in them as part of the switch. And so it becomes this real trial and error of getting a good compass reading. And thankfully the, the systems are pretty linear in that sense. And so you can kind of correct them at the end, twist your whole map back to, to being straight. Oh, that's great. I've had a lot of students, uh, they have um, calculators inside their clipboards. And so they figured that out as they're mapping pretty quickly that something's off for that exact reason. Nice. Well, so I think we should take actually maybe one step back and say, how does one get inside a glacier to, to start with? <laughs> it's magic. Yeah, that, that could be a, a challenge in itself. Um, so my main site is just behind um, the town of Longyearbyen. So I will first you jump on a plane and get to Svalbard, which can sometimes be an <laughs> endeavor in itself. Um, but then from there, we backcountry ski up to the site. Um, it's in a protected area, so you can't actually snowmobile up there, which would otherwise be the go-to method for getting around <laughs> icy places. Um, so you, you strap your rifle on your back cause you don't want to get eaten by the polar bear along the way. And then you ski up the glacier. Um, and then you take the rifle back off again because it's not likely you're going to run into a bear inside the, inside the ice cave. Um, thankfully. Hey, that happens in cartoons all the time. What are you talking about? <laughs> and then we set up an anchor and we rappel down on a rope down inside the ice. Um, and so at that point you're switching from what's called a superglacial channel, so where water has cut through the ice on top of the glacier, and then at some point um, it's cut a deep enough canyon for itself that the, the weight of the ice actually starts to close around the canyon. Um, and so it's called a cut and closure channel. And so it forms these kind of teardrop-shaped passages. And, and right at the point where you've got that roof closure you can imagine it's then protected from snow falling down, and so you can you can have a cave that remains open year round. 
And so you, you crawl in there and then walk downstream. Hopefully, sometimes you have to go upstream and that's where life gets interesting because if you are going upstream, then you hit waterfalls, then you have to lead ice climb up those waterfalls, which I am not the world's <laughs> best lead ice climber as it turns out. <laughs> this is amazing. I mean, any like stories I have from paleo mag sampling are paled in comparison to this. I'm, I'm so excited. See, we talked to a bunch of geophysicists last week, and now John brought me you, so that's very nice of him. <laughs> you know, there, there are days when I, I wish it was a little less exciting, but um, it's, it's fun. You know, beca because these places are hard to get into, it means that there's been effectively zero work done in here before. Um, there have been a handful of papers by a group up at Svalbard. Um, Jason Gully and Doug Ben have really kind of piloted the study of, of these englacial systems um, and done some great work, but there are really only a couple of papers out there. And so what it means is that, you know, I, I crawl around inside these things and around every corner, there's some feature that hasn't been described yet. Um, and, and just the basics of, you know, how do these englacial systems form and change over time is still not known. So I'm wandering around being incredibly excited as I fail at ice climbing <laughs> because the science is awesome. <laughs> I mean, a lot of what had been done up to this point, right, was kind of conceptual ideas yeah. of how things work that were you know, at least relatively old, probably. Yeah, so, so there's a, a whole body of thinking about glacial hydrology that is rooted in these, these fundamental papers, especially by um, this one guy, Shreve. So the Shreve et al. papers from the, the late 70s and 80s um, were really influential in kind of developing glacial hydrology in, um, as we currently understand it. Um, unfortunately, some of his conceptions about um, englacial hydrology and the way that these channels form were great when you're sitting in your armchair back in academia, but uh, then you, you see these systems and, and his description really doesn't, doesn't stand up. He described these almost vertical passages and what we see are almost horizontal passages. So, um, so, so we had to come up with kind of a new theory. And so in the last few years, there's been this push for understanding this cut enclosure mechanism, which is great, but then also there are waterfalls inside. And so how do you incorporate into our understanding of how these things move these waterfalls? So I'm, I'm still at the level of, you know, bringing in the big picture of how do these waterfalls form and change through time? And then how can we incorporate that with this cut and closure mechanism um, in order to say something about how water's cutting through ice now that we maybe don't trust the early Shreve <laughs> theories quite as much. So there was this great EOS article um, that I know a bunch of people sent me because they said, you like glaciers, look at this. Um, <laughs> but have you you've been going long enough to see how these sort of inglacial features have changed over time? Yeah. Um, so so these systems are on a cycle of the water starts to cut into the ice at the surface and then it cuts deeper and deeper. And at some point it reaches the bed of ice. Um, and, and once the channel reaches the bed, it, it flattens and it widens out. And it's much easier to close down and for water to back up and refreeze. And so what can happen is then you kind of have a reset of the system. And so then water starts to flow along the surface again and cuts down in. Um, and there's really great evidence for this. You just look at aerial imagery of these glaciers and you see there are all these scars on the surface um, where these channels have cut through the ice again and again. And so um, 
what I've been able to see over the last six years or so of going up there is is kind of the the progression of of one system um, as it's cutting deeper and deeper into this one glacier. Um, it's been pretty cool. It's it, I've been I was up there in 2010 and then 2014 and then 2016, and the system is unrecognizable each time. Wow. Wow. See, this is the importance of good field sketches. Absolutely. <laughs> you've got that kind but of we do more than time. we do more than just sketch we we take a lot of pictures too um and do some structure from motion and my colleague here at penn state ken mankoff um has done a lot of work to using a connect to do 3d point clouds um from inside as well yeah that was actually going to be one of my next questions was what kind of technology do you employ because i know you said it was kind of 1800 style mapping but i I knew there had to be something a little bit more to that so how well does the structure from motion work and i guess we should probably explain really briefly it's you know you take a ton of pictures and then run them through this algorithm and it tries to generate what the 3d environment was where those pictures were taken right yeah exactly and it works really well um in an ice cave in general, um, if you are a professional photographer, I would say. So um, <laughs> taking pictures inside these systems is hard. Um, it's cold and your camera is trying to die and focus, getting focus settings is difficult and getting the light right. Imagine it's, you know, it's, it's pitch black in here and ice reflects light in funny ways. And so it's, it's, it can be hard to capture the environment. Um, I've been really lucky to work with some professional photographers who were friends who happened to be there um, and were able to to document the caves really nicely for me. Um, and so they have been able to get some great structure from motion shots. Um, my attempts have been a little less successful, but um, Ken, Ken Mankoff here at Penn State um, has has perfected his um, his way of doing it such that he's able to, to get some pretty sweet data that way. Uh, the cool thing is, though, that, you know, even if we really perfect this technique, we're still going to need um, a baseline survey. So structure from motion isn't great at getting you um, absolute surveying or distances, right? It's great on the small scale, but if you want a map of the whole system and how that's changing year in and year out, um, kind of within the rest of the glacier, you still need, you know, a solid GPS point on the surface and an inclinometer and compass going through the cave. Yeah, well, and you can say, well, and we're going to tie those two data sets together, but that one sentence is months of work, right? <laughs> yeah, my advisor is really good at, at giving me those one sentences that then I spend six months pounding my head over. <laughs> right. It's great, though. It's one of those things that should be easy, but it's not as soon as you look at it. Yeah. I will say it's good to yeah. be on the other side of the PhD to, you know, give those edicts and then just sit back and wait. It's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to that day. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so you guys, do you leave anything? So you don't leave anything down in the glacier. You've got these GPS stations on top, but nothing actually, no sort of monitoring stuff that gets left, or do you? Um, so so there's been some play with, with leaving things below. Um, we have yet to successfully leave much below. Um, so we put pressure sensors down in a subglacial system at one point. Um but, and one thing to remember is that, of course, everything through here is at atmospheric pressure, right? So it's, it's open up to the surface. Um, and so if we're looking at these small variations in pressure, we have to, uh, which by that I mean like water pressure. So what is the water flow doing throughout the year? Um, but we have to correct for atmospheric pressure variations and our 
atmospheric pressure variation station on the surface got totally destroyed by <laughs> I don't know what. <laughs> I have Let's all kinds of pictures bear. of a polar bear getting hungry and <laughs> snacking on it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's awful. And these aren't things, you know, you can just run out and fix really quick. Um, I imagine that that's costly and just devastating. <laughs> well, you know, so the other fun part of that is, is, is that, I mean, this isn't the PhD that I came to Penn State to do, right? I'm, I'm more of a glacial geophysicist. Um, I use active seismics to look at uh, large scale flow processes on Northeast Greenland. That's my quote unquote official PhD. And this has been just <laughs> a fun side project, which also hasn't really had a budget. <laughs> so it's been cobbling together little bits of money from elsewhere. So nothing we've done has been hugely uh, high budget, but it's amazing what you can do with little grants from um, the very generous Department of Geosciences. <laughs> yeah, well, and especially I guess in field work and even in lab work, it seems like it's always the reference station that you need to make all of your other data actually mean something that gets taken out or stops working. It's not one of the auxiliary stations that, okay, well, we lost that station, but no, it's always the reference station. We're going to put three stations underneath a glacier. And they're going to be fine. You know, there's uh -huh. going to be ice. You know, it's like 60 meters of ice on top of this thing that's flowing along and a river that it's sitting within. They're totally fine. The one sitting in the, in the air outside. Yeah, that's the one that has the trouble. <laughs> oh, as always. Um, so you alluded to this. This wasn't really what you set out to do. But I'm guessing that this is something you sort of did in your own spare time. I mean, much like John, I know he's done a lot of caving sort of stuff. Did you start off doing that? Yeah, exactly. So I'm I'm a limestone caver back here in in the real world, if you will, um, <laughs> and so that's what's made all of this work up on Svalbard possible. Even you know I've had a lot of help from the National Speleological Society. Um, there's a, a chapter here in town, the Nittany Grotto, um, and I've had members that have come up to help me with this mapping and have lent me instruments. And so it's really the techniques that I've learned about in the the limestone cave mapping world. Um, and the people within that world who have who have enabled this um, ice cave work as well. So how did that like that physical skill set translate to ice? Was it easy to go from caving to like ice caving? Yeah, so it's, it's a lot of the same um, techniques in terms of how you move your body through the system. I, people don't really realize, but there are little weird muscles you use when you're <laughs> army crawling on your side while trying to take <laughs> measurements. Um, and, and so just the, the mentality of how to be safe in caves and, and how to spend time in these small dark systems, um, that definitely applies. Um, you don't really wear crampons when you're traveling around inside of limestone caves. There are definitely some, <laughs> some moving around differences. Um, but, but it's a lot of the same skill sets. Absolutely. Hmm. Yeah. So I, I guess... I know this is something that Shannon was curious about, and I think she's got a follow-up question for it, so I'll steal this one, of what is it like uh, compared to a normal cave being underneath a glacier? And I guess uh, one thing we haven't really said is how, how far underneath yeah. the surface are you? Yeah, so, so these are all pretty small glaciers. So, so that's one thing to remember as I'm doing all this work is, you know, it's, it's always worth thinking about how much do these processes scale up to the big ice sheets of the world, you know, if we care about sea level rise or big ice sheet dynamics, what, what is the impact of, you know, migration of waterfalls on Svalbard? And, and the way that I think about this is that 
these are the accessible systems. And so if I can understand, you know, how how these waterfalls are changing on the small scale on Svalbard, um, that might apply to parts of the surface of Greenland, say. Um, and the erosion mechanisms that I've been describing. I am totally getting lost, getting excited about ice here. What was your original question, John? <laughs> <laughs> well, so the original one was... <laughs> How far underneath the ice are you here? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, right, right. Because, okay, so my point was these glaciers are really thin compared to Greenland. And so trying to tie it back in is a little hard sometimes. I, I stretch this all the time. Um, these are thin, cold glaciers. So they're like 60 meters thick or so. And so you're underneath about 60 meters of ice. Okay, yeah. So that's that's still enough to be pretty Disturbing? scary, I would imagine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, eh. just 60 meters of ice. <laughs> right. eh. It's not that bad. <laughs> how much noise goes on down there? I mean, I imagine it's obviously quiet, but how much noise does the glacier make? It's pretty quiet. Um, so the surface is where it's loud. You get windstorms and um, it, it, the weather up there can be crazy. And so it's just loud on the surface sometimes. And so that's always what I notice is it's quiet then when you drop into these ice caves. Um, you don't really hear the, the ice moving. I think in an area where you had faster ice flow, you might. Um, so I spent some time on Pine Island Glacier down in West Antarctica at one point. And through our camp, we would like get crevasses opening up overnight. And so you'd be laying in oh. your tent at night and hear this cracking and popping that was happening um, but that was just because the ice was moving so dang fast down there. Wow. Um, but on Svalbard, uh, what... the ice is not moving much at all, and so it's quiet. What kind of, I mean, how much does it move? So these little glaciers are just a couple meters per year. They're, they're mostly frozen to their bed. They're pretty much just sitting there. Um, they used to be bigger and flow more actively kind of in Little Ice Age, and there are some beautiful little ice age moraines that you can see all the way around these glaciers. Um, but now they're kind of retreating and have cooled down enough that they're they're frozen at their bed. Um, so they're not flowing much at all. That's a really interesting dichotomy in the ice sheets in the north versus the south. Yeah, I mean, so it's not so much more north versus south as it is size. So how thick is your glacier? How big is it? Um, and kind of fundamental differences in ice flow based on how big your glacier is. Oh, okay. Okay, gotcha. Well, yeah, I mean, because guys. places like uh, Pine Island and Negus are moving, what, 100 times that plus yeah, exactly. per year? Yeah. So, I mean, fastest moving ice on Earth is something like four kilometers per year, so, or seven, multiple kilometers per year. <laughs> right. <laughs> Order of magnitude. That's what we go for here. Yeah. It's yeah, not exact yeah. science. Great. That's the tagline. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, what do you, after you've gone through and mapped the system for several years, what have you learned about how these nick points move over that course of time and how that changes or how that interacts with the system resetting? Yeah, definitely. So so what we see is that the nick points get bigger over time. So there'll be some small perturbation that that initiates a little step. And then over time, that step grows. And then steps grow together because different steps move at different speeds. Um, and so what we see is that these initial small steps grow into moulins. Um, 
so large drops um, of water through the ice, um, sometimes from the surface all the way to the bed. Um, and that's one fun part that has come out of this work is that we've we've come up with a mechanism for moulin formation or, or for the formation of these shafts from of, of water flowing from the surface to the, the bed of the glacier in cold ice. So this is cold ice that is flowing slowly. You wouldn't otherwise expect to have these big vertical shafts. Um, and yet here's a way in which they can form by the movement of these, um, these waterfalls through the glacier. Um, so what I've seen is that the steps are getting bigger, um, they're growing together. And then especially at the point where water is dropping to underneath the ice. So at the englacial to subglacial transition, um, there's always a step at that point. You can imagine there's a, a real change in the, the flow regime at that point. Um, and so that right. initiates a, a step formation. And that has just been growing bigger and bigger uh, since I've been going to this same system. It gets more and more exciting every year, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess, do these steps grow from converting potential energy to kinetic and at the bottom and like a turbulent action? Or what's the idea for the, the bigger they are, the faster they grow? Yeah, so um, it, it, it's a good question, working on that. <laughs> you, so <laughs> we assume in glacial hydrology that um, it's a 100% efficient conversion from potential energy to, to um, thermal melting energy. So all of the energy that you are losing um, as you go over a step is immediately being converted into melt energy at that point. Um, and that's definitely a good assumption to make across a whole glacier um, because the water we see coming out the snout is at the same temperature and kind of at the same slow flow speed as what we see going in. So there's no kind of net storage of energy through a glacier. Um, but there is a question of kind of over what space scale within an individual step um, do you actually have um, complete efficiency within the system. Um, and so that's, some, that's something I'm playing with in my numerical modeling efforts of this problem. Um, so that's a piece we haven't jumped into yet, but I, I take all of my surveys and then um, digitize them, of course, and then use the results of um, my erosion rates mostly um, as inputs to a numeric model. So how, how do you go about numerical modeling something like this? It sounds like a pretty a pretty ugly system to try to solve. <laughs> yeah. You simplify it a lot. <laughs> As assumptions. <laughs> so many assumptions. Um, yeah, so so you pick your favorite water flow code, right? So um, if you're if you're feeling like a it's a one D kind of day, you can code up your Saint Venance equation so you conserve mass and momentum. Um, and you know you, you can do this with a, a little finite difference model in in MATLAB, um, which is sometimes my preferred way of doing it, right? Because if I've completely built it myself, then I know what its limitations are. Um, right. So, so there's that world, and then you come up with some kind of erosion mechanism. So that's been the the main contribution I would say of what I've done is um, playing with different ways of. Um, quantifying erosion within these systems. So I've got water flowing and what is the incision rate then that I am applying underneath that flowing water? Um, there isn't a, a well agreed upon a way to do this within glaciology at this point. Um, so yeah, that's that's the simple world. Um, or you can move into a Navier-Stokes solution of a computational, you know, your CFD 
modeling of 3D, which I, I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those those get uh, complicated really fast. Really, really fast, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and computationally so intensive. <laughs> uh, quite. <laughs> My little laptop would not be pleased. <laughs> I've, I've been lucky, though, to work with um, a research group at UT Knoxville, the Papa Nicolau Research Group. Um, they... Um, do some nice uh, 2D modeling that handles turbulence in a way that is way fancier than I would be able to figure out on my own. And so uh, stealing their, well, borrowing nicely their water flow codes um, <laughs> and then sticking my erosion derivations underneath their water flow codes. So do you have to consider, I, I'm guessing this is probably a small enough effect that's not in the model, maybe not though, uh, ice creep closure at the bottom and in these channels, I mean, I know you said that at the top you're getting closure, but I'm guessing that's more snow bridging than anything else. Yeah. Um, so, right. So, so your creep closure rate changes as you get deeper within the ice column. So the extent to which it matters at a given point, you know, varies based on where are you within the system. And so, no, it's not something I'm accounting for at this point, um, mostly because the, the scale, you know, back to our order of magnitude uh, problem here. The order of magnitude of the incision rates is several orders faster than the closure rates. Um, and so I'm able to, to ignore it at this point. It'd be great to incorporate it um, down the road. There's a, a, a really great finite element model that um, a group from Iceland, um, Alex Jarosh and his group have been working on that um, handles that closure within these channels nicely. And so at some point, coupling his model to my model would be great, but we're not quite there yet. It's another one of those one sentence six month things, right? <laughs> oh, maybe maybe like six years. I don't know. That, that's a little more of an undertaking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And well, so I guess I've got one more question before I let Shannon ask her esker question. Finally, <laughs> uh, <laughs> what's the bed like? Yeah, when you get um, all the way down to the bed of the glacier. That it, it's kind of magical down there, right? Because you're you're crawling around and you realize you are fully under a glacier and I, maybe I just get more excited about that because I find glaciers fascinating and exciting than other people but there's there's the magic to that moment of oh my gosh there's an entire glacier on top of me right now um <laughs> it also gets a lot harder to cave down there just because you're now dealing with rocks um and and wishing you had <laughs> knee pads and the channel system gets narrower and so you're inevitably army crawling along um, and some fun things that I like to think about as my face is smashed against the rocks in front of me are, um, the, the channel system as it's flowing is removing fines, right? So you've got, you've got a, a stream that's flowing along the glacier bed and it's able to transport the fines away. And so you just have large grain cobbles. There's very little sediment deposition that's happening within the system. And so you really have just these, these large cobbles, except if you start kind of digging into the side, you can, you can get to the where, where the water has not eroded yet and then find the finds again. Um, someone needs to do a, a grain size analysis and, and talk about the erosive capacity of these subglacial channels. Um, I'm there. Maybe some I'm listener. totally there. <laughs> this sounds so great. Awesome. <laughs> Well, and then, and then oh, see, that sounds like one of those geology things, Shannon. Oh, exactly. Like I tuned back in. You guys started talking <laughs> finite element models, and I was, you know, 
checking the weather. But now <laughs> I'm back into it. Um, winnowing finds. Yep, I gotcha. <laughs> Excellent. Well, here, here's another um, one for you then on on the like glacial geology front. Um, so we've got a waterfall to the bed of a glacier that's cutting backwards through time, right? So you've got a, a waterfall and it's stepping backwards. Um, and so it is having a pretty strong erosive force right at its, right where, at the bottom of the waterfall, right? It's entraining sediments at that point mm-hmm. and then it's cutting backwards. And so, and, and that's a not well-described erosive mechanism. So it, it's not I know, talked about not within all. glacial geology at all. And so... I don't know. We don't know much about tunnel valleys and how they form. Is, is you know, is this contributing? Um, I, th- I think there's potential for a pretty massive erosive force there that hasn't been described. Uh, I'm writing that down. That sounds super cool. <laughs> Someone should do it. I, I have enough other projects going on. Someone should should make that happen. Uh, that's that's really neat. I've been trying to figure out how I can get to Antarctica. I don't know why I've always wanted to go there, but um, yeah. I've, I've tried to think about bolide impacts or paleo mag stuff, but this sounds pretty, pretty legit. So. Absolutely. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Ice remnant magnetism doesn't really work. Right. So. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> yeah, not at all. That whole lack of though ice is a mineral. We had to get that in there. Thank you, our our constant theme. <laughs> yeah. Our constant theme. <laughs> is it? I yep. approve. Yes, we've we've had and actually on uh, undersampled a couple weeks ago, uh, they had Jessica Ball, uh, USGS volcanologist on and this came up because somebody was served a drink with uh, ice in it. And there's an argument because it said drink on the rocks. And so there's this whole argument about rocks versus. Not a rock. Oh, man, that's nice. That's a serious nerd argument that I can uh-huh. find. That's really I like good. it. <laughs> so my last question for you. Yeah. What is an esker? Please. Try to describe this. You say the hardest question. It is like it's so much harder than finite element modeling. (laughs) No, it is truly. So, so I'm glad you asked it though because eskers have been kind of a a pet peeve of mine for a long time now. In part because everyone knows them as a glacial feature, and um, you see them everywhere. They're this massive um, glacial feature that you know across Canada and. Scandinavia, and we do not have a great understanding of how they form. <laughs> I, I had to go. So, so Richard Alley here at Penn State is a, a genius among men of glaciologists in terms of <clears throat> he has a better mental picture of glaciology than anyone. And and so I went to him a while back with, okay, Richard, talk to me about eskers because <laughs> no one, you know, every textbook says they are a a, a subglacial feature and uh, great. So we've got we've got rivers underneath the ice that are forming these <laughs> these things that we see everywhere. But then how do they actually form? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It it just like that's how I describe them to people who don't you know I've never seen one. I'm like it's like an inverse river, right? Because it's this high that's sinuous, but how? <laughs> well, right, and and so they they occur in places also where you have bedrock so it's a it's a a hard bedded glacier um so places where you have lots of sediment um you you don't see them forming so you've got sediment collecting in these places uh from these channels um and so, so so there are a couple ideas right so um one is that this is my current favorite uh you've got 
at your glacier margin so at your, or at your ice sheet margin where you have water that's able to penetrate through the ice. So you're at low enough elevations and it's warm enough that your surface melt water, um, you have enough surface melt water that it penetrates through the ice. Um, so you have this seasonally varying meltwater pulse to underneath the ice. Um, and so what it does is it opens itself up a channel uh, in the summer and then it, it can't sustain that opening. And so you end up with a low pressure region. So, so the channel was once full of water when there was lots of water, that water input is no longer there. Now you have a low pressure zone. And so before all of that creep closure can happen, so before the ice shuts your channel down, you can have kind of some squeezing in of sediments. So any little bits of sediments and rocks that you have around are gonna get sucked into your channel right after big warm events that push a bunch of water through the system and open up this big system that it then can't maintain. And before it can totally shut down, it squeezes in some rocks and sediments. So there's a little bit of that, but we see that um, there's definitely a lot of uh, signs of fluvial transport, right? These things ha have, um, have graded beds. And so there's absolutely a big component also of, you know, you've got rivers transporting and deposition of sediments underneath here. But at what point do you switch from a depositional environment to an erosive environment? And these are all questions that glacial hydrology has not done a good job of answering yet. <laughs> I'm sticking with my inverse rivers then. Cause I mean, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Cause as you were talking about that pressure sort of thing, the grading thing was what came to my mind because these are like very, yeah, yeah definite grading. So they're so strange. They're really strange. They are. They are. I mean, if nothing else, you can say they are a sign of water moving sediments around underneath the ice <laughs> and apparently in that direction. And I think that's as best as we can give you right now, as terrible as that is. <laughs> oh, that's great. I love it. OK, I'll stay. And, and this that, is then. this is the voice of Kai Riverman and the voice of Richard Alley. We, we... <laughs> <laughs> so there we go. <laughs> Inverse rivers. If any of your students have further questions, yep. we'll just, uh, you know, send them some papers. Uh, and they'll say, my God, I'm so sorry I asked this question. Exactly. <laughs> I think you, I yeah, think I don't you think... need to send them a time machine, you know, put them, put them 100 years in the future once we've done a little more work on eskers and can say anything about them. <laughs> and they'll say, yeah, that's what I'm going to do with this time machine. <laughs> you haven't met my students. <laughs> oh, excellent. Oh, that was so exciting. I'm so excited about that. Um, I think glaciers are really cool, mostly because we don't have them around here. No one ever studies them around here. So that's what's also exciting. Well, and we did a glaciers part one show a while back, and there never was part two, mostly because we ran out of what we knew yeah. in part one. <laughs> so it's good to talk to someone that actually... <laughs> knows more about some of these things exactly this well like and then you bring me on and in your final question i can't even answer because that's the great thing about <laughs> glaciology too is that we just don't know a lot it's the lead-in to part three man that's what we're doing yeah. <laughs> so before we move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show is there anything that you'd like to uh add or leave us with actually uh, I will throw in a pitch for the University Center on Svalbard. Um, if there are any students out there who are stoked about learning more about glacial hydrology or really anything Arctic related, there's a fantastic university up there. 
um, with free tuition. Thank you, Norwegian government. Um, they have fabulous faculty members like myself. Um, <laughs> no, it's, it's a fantastic place. It's where I discovered glaciology and um, you can go up for a semester or a year and take courses that can transfer back to your university. Um, we should link them in the show notes. Fantastic school. Absolutely. Well, that sounds great. Yeah, we'll make sure to put that in and uh, any other links that you think would be fun. We've got your website linked in where people can go look at all the, the amazing photos that you've got. And maybe we'll try to link in some of these papers that you talked about too for those who really do want to dive into this a little bit deeper. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> was, that but, a, was that a glacial cave joke there, John? <laughs> a little bit deeper? I just No, no, that okay. wasn't. <laughs> Well, I think that means then that it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay. I really got to get my cowbell <laughs> back. This is very you do. disappointing. <laughs> so we ask you to pick a fun paper, Kaya. And this one that you picked by Anderson is Off Like a Shot, Scaling of Ballistic Tongue Projection Reveals Extremely High Performance in Small Chameleons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought it would be a nice change of pace. Uh, so, so this paper is all about chameleon tongues. Um, and I mean, I spend a lot of time thinking about elastic response of ice. And apparently this guy spends a lot of time thinking about the elastic response of um, chameleon tongues. Because as it turns out, um, instead of their tongue being released by a muscle contraction, the chameleon, so they're elastic elements within their tongue that they stretch back within their mouth and then release in order to send their tongues forward to catch their prey. And uh, this group did this study showing that very small chameleons do a better job of that because they are just proportionally smaller relative to the whole jaw tongue apparatus. Um, but yeah, they can pull 50 Gs with their tongues. And so, <laughs> to reveal this about myself, I did a lot of pet sitting um, for these professors <laughs> that are my my mentors, and they have a chameleon farm called Circle Tail Farms. <laughs> yeah, and they breed chameleons, just like just what you would imagine. And so, this is not surprising why someone would think about this if you watch chameleons feed, because it's the weirdest thing on earth. Yeah, and looking through this paper, so you said you think about elastic responsive ice a lot, and you know I, we I always harp about uh, rocks being elastic and storing energy for earthquakes and releasing it all very quickly. It was, it's it's amazing. Like I said, so one of the well, and also we we deal with. In fact, Shannon gave me a lot of trouble a couple episodes ago about how does what you do scale to real life. And we talked about scaling some here. In this paper, they're talking about scaling, but instead it's body size, like you said, to jaw and tongue apparatus size and all this crazy thing. And it was fascinating to see that everybody has a reviewer that asks about scaling. <laughs> <laughs> Even in the chameleon community, you can't get away from it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> some of these guys are little tiny guys, though, you know? I mean, it's it makes sense. <laughs> Even those little tiny guys uh, can pull accelerations of 486 meters per second squared. Yeah, and there was a, a peak acceleration, they said, of, uh, let's see, 2.6 kilometers per second per second. So that's 
like 260 G's. Excellent. Uh, <laughs> I think and, we need to take a minute to think about what this is doing to the cricket. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 260 G's wax you upside the head. Yeah, that's... <laughs> Well, I, I liked their experimental setup also for the crickets. They described it as a cricket trapeze that they would suspend <laughs> these little crickets upon and then take a bunch of pictures of the chameleon eating dinner. Just to show you, anything is interesting with a high-speed camera. Man, it's so true. It's so true. Like, I have no doubts that all this stuff is like, let's take a picture of that with a high-speed camera. And then it turns into a nature paper. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> We've looked at raindrops and all this other stuff with high-speed cameras. I think it's wonderful. <laughs> well, yeah, and they actually used um, Image J to do a lot of this processing, which haven't you used that some for ice-related things? I have not, no. Oh, okay. Maybe they, hmm. Somebody I talked to recently was using Image J, and when I read it in here, I was like, hmm, I really need to look at the software because I think it's mostly open source. Yes, and it seems fascinating because they've got all these graphs in here, like time series, uh, and I have no idea how you calculate this from a high-speed video, but like a time series of power release and watts per kilogram from the tongue. So having a lot of experience with chameleons, um, I found this paper very interesting, and hopefully it inspires some non-chameleon-related um, inspiration for someone out there, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. I guess, like you said uh, earlier when we were talking offline, uh, you never know where inspiration will come from, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, <laughs> well, if you have any feedback that you would like to let us uh, know about, whether it be a fun paper or uh, something that you heard that you found interesting or let would, you would like to know more about, Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Uh, we can get a hold of us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. And as always, especially during finals week, we're hanging out on Twitter instead of doing our work. <laughs> at don'tpanicgeo. Yes. Uh, John is at geo underscore Lehman, and I am at Shannon Doolin. And Kaya, where would you like to be found on the internet? I have a website that is kayariverman.com, and I also hang out on Twitter at kriverman. All right, great. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our